Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. The, the program itself provides what was de deemed then or called then honest work. It was a day's labor. Um, you know, as much as you might enjoy sleeping in on a weekend, the idea that you sleep in every day starts to wear thin and you start to feel a lack of purpose. These jobs provided that for young men who frankly needed it. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton. And today is episode number 76, Bring Back the CCC. Now, you might read that title and think, I bet I know what they're going to be talking about today. And you would be right. Uh, basically, today I'm, I'm joined by John Benai. He's a fellow co-worker. He's a history teacher in the same district that I work at. Great guy. And he's going to bring some background information on what the original Civilian Conservation Corps was, what it did, uh, the reach that it had, the good things about it, and then we talk very, you know, sort of briefly about some of the downfalls of it. Um, and then we sort of dive into the idea of bringing back this concept, bringing back the concept of putting out-of-work people to work to do some conservation work what that could mean for our country now in the current pandemic times, uh, but even in non-pandemic times. Uh, and then we also talk about some legislation that has been put forth uh, recently that, you know, sort of brings that concept to, to the forefront as a possibility. So I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here. I don't want to... Uh, put any spoilers out there for the episode. So let's just jump right into it. Uh, here's my conversation with John and uh, a little history of the original CCC along with the idea of starting it again. Well, everyone, welcome again to another week of the podcast. And today I'm joined by History buff, fellow colleague, John Benai. Hello, hello. <laughs> John, thanks for uh, joining me today. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, so what we're going to be talking about today, as everyone heard in the intro, is the idea of the renewing the CCC, that same concept. Uh, but I feel like before we do that, we got to talk about the history, what the original... CCC was. So let's talk about that. Sure. I, <laughs> where where about, do you want to start? <laughs> well, you know, the CCC without a doubt is regarded uh, as the most popular of all New Deal programs. Uh, it was a hit from the start. Newspapers of the time period have nothing but good to say about it. And even in hindsight, you know, if you search through, you know, uh, works written about the New Deal, about FDR himself. It hits all of the sort of important marks. It puts people to work, makes them feel good. 
and it does it in a rather efficient manner while providing long-term improvements to the nation. Yeah, I mean, my grandfather was young whenever uh, the CCC was going originally, and he still talks today about his uncle who actually took part in it and like talks about some of the things that they they did and talks about it in a sense of reverence and i mean from what i've read about it you know what i know about it which obviously i, I couldn't have experienced it but uh, born you know 50 years later uh but it's still like it seems like the perfect program given the time well, and I think the reason you've chosen this as a topic is that it might just be the perfect program for our time as well. Yeah, yeah, and we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. So let, let's talk about some of the details of the original plan. Well, actually, I wanted to back up just okay. because to no, me, that's good. to understand a little bit about the CCC and why it was so successful, you have to understand the time period. So 1932, it's the depths of the Depression. 25% uh, is the unemployment rate. And... A sort of famous episode occurs in the spring of 32 when 20,000 veterans from World War I and their families descend on Washington to put pressure on Congress to come through with an early payment of something that was called a war bonus. Uh, in 1924, Congress authorized the payment of a $1,000 bonus to all World War I veterans. But that bonus, a thank you if you would, was really supposed to be for retirement. They weren't going to collect it until 1945. It was going to mature at that point, almost like a savings bond might. But when the Depression hits, it's October 29, 1929, crash happens on Wall Street, and no one really knew how long this thing would last. But by 1932, it's become clear that unemployment rates are only going up, and the veterans show up in D.C. basically asking for early payment. They hadn't gotten any support from Harding or Coolidge before, and Hoover was particularly sort of nonplussed about the idea. It passed in the early payment, um, passed in, in the House of Representatives, but Senate also was not supportive. And while to this point, 20,000 trained killers, you know, these are former vets and their families who are desperate, are living on the banks of the Anacostia River across from, you know, the Capitol building itself. And this tent city that had grown up becomes a sore spot, you know. And Hooverville. Well, it is a Hooverville of sorts. Mm -hmm. They literally call this the Bonus Army. They're okay. there, and they travel from around the country. There's a, there's a great photo of some uh, locals from Jeanette, PA, who walked oh. um, down to the Capitol to walk. Yes. Yeah, well, it's a march, and they yeah. pick up people along okay. the way to okay. show their displeasure. But when they show up in the Capitol, and it's become clear the bill's not going to pass Congress, Hoover starts to get nervous. He got asked to actually go and speak to these men. He was not interested in doing that. <laughs> probably a good idea. Yeah, probably smart. Right. Uh, but instead, he calls up the Army. And he gets the chief of the Army, uh, General Douglas MacArthur, in one of his less proud moments. Uh, and, by the way, his aide, Dwight Eisenhower, show up and marshal troops together. We're talking about fixed bayonets. Uh, eventually taking Patton and his 3rd Cavalry into the flats where the veterans were hanging out. So you can imagine you've got World War I veterans facing against new soldiers, new recruits in Patton's Cavalry bayonets, tear gas, and they burn the place down. A hundred people are injured, and famously, I don't even know the circumstances behind it, one infant dies. But the newspapers, I know, the newspapers seize upon the death of this the infant. That's the reason I know of it. But the, the reality is that Hoover, who at this point had seemed disconnected from the suffering of others. After all, he is a uh, Ivy League educated engineer, makes a millionaire of himself before he approaches politics. You know, he comes from a long line of Republican laissez-faire uh, that is to say, hands-off, 
government uh, leaders who felt that the best way for the economy to right itself was simply to allow the economy to right itself. And so the idea of handing out wealth, relief, um, it just wasn't, it wasn't going to fly. And I almost feel bad for Hoover. He won in a landslide in 1928. He loses terribly in 1932 to Roosevelt. He gets less than 40% of the popular vote. And, you know, by the standards of that time and today, it's the greatest political defeat maybe in our nation's history as far as success to failure in four short years. And he's lampooned as the person who doesn't care about you and, and you know, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. In any case, the reality was that Republicans had controlled the government for all uh, the last 36 years, with the exception of Wilson's time there. And the idea that government would get involved in doing what was considered a state function, a church function, uh, uh, the work of, that is to say, United Way, Red Cross, these various agencies, the idea that the government would be the one with a ham sandwich in hand just seemed wrong. Um, and, and counterproductive, perhaps, as well. The reason I'm giving you all this background is because there is this extended period of time when Hoover has been voted out of office, but FDR, despite his optimism and seeming good ideas, can't make any action happen until March 4th, because at that time in our history, that was Inauguration Day. Mm -hmm. The 20th Amendment would rectify that, but we had a very long lame duck period at that point, during which banks are continuing to close, Farmers are being foreclosed upon, and unemployment rates are continuing to go up. And so when FDR takes the oath of office there in March on the Capitol, you know, he gives this famous speech where he says, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. And he's trying to convince the American public that with the right attitude, our pluckiness, the sort of American spirit, we can turn this economy around. The line that garners the greatest amount of support from the audience is when he says that he would ask Congress to, quote, I'm sorry, he would ask Congress for broad executive power to wage war against the emergency as great as the power that would be given to me if we were in fact invaded by a foreign foe. And they do. Uh, his first hundred days, and you've heard that phrase before, it's now mm -hmm. being discussed with Biden's term in office. The first hundred days became a measuring stick because of FDR. You promise all these things, how did you do? FDR did better than anyone. Uh, 15 major programs. Imagine something like Obamacare or a $1.9 trillion budget, um, I guess, assistant program like the Biden team is pushing for now. Imagine 15 similarly sized programs being ushered through Congress in a matter of 100 days. And one of the very first was the Civilian Conservation Corps because there really wasn't much of a fight over this kind of program. It seemed by um, by measures, one of the cheaper programs that we could offer. So, I mean, you're having some bipartisan agreement in that, right? I mean, the, and the idea of this is it can be used on both sides of the aisle, whether you're representing rural communities or urban communities, because everyone's suffering. Absolutely. And, and uh, while there is some conservative qualms about costs and, and measuring success and how much, you know, that's what it comes down to mm -hmm. is budget. Um, the government is hurting as well as the people. Uh, they're unemployed. We're not collecting taxes. How do we fund these programs? But what you find is that overwhelmingly, Republican voters, for instance, 67 percent of them in 1934 support the program in its reauthorization. So it's wildly, wildly popular among um, FDR-loving Democrats, but even among conservatives, it turns out in the states they're fighting over um, spending within their own. We want a CCC camp in my congressional mm -hmm. district. I can tell you here in Pennsylvania, we did pretty well. We had 151 mm -hmm. camps. 
second only to the state of California, and they're wildly popular. Because when a camp shows up in your town, that means there are going to be hundreds of young men who have dollars to spend because they are not earning much, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but they do earn. Uh, one of the estimates is that small towns that would have been, and these are usually in sort of remote, more remote locations where the camps are constructed, those small towns could count on up to $5,000 of increased spending per month because of uh, these soldiers, if you would, the, the soil soldiers who show up to plant trees um, in their local towns. So of FDR's alphabet soup programs, his relief, recovery, and reform you may have heard of, this is certainly one of the more popular programs. And he's able to, within 37 days, go from a thought to the first volunteer. That's crazy. It is. I, and I, it's still a study in how do we get through that kind of red tape. I think he had less to deal with <laughs> at that time. Um, but he seemed to have the will and support of the, of the public. And so when he tasks a secretary of interior, agriculture, uh, labor, and the military and says, make it happen, they somehow make it so. The Army, in fact, will use heavily to organize these camps and to move people into positions. Most of the recruits are from the east. Many of the places they'll go are in the Midwest or out west. And so there is some staging to be done there. Um, and initially, the camps are tent camps, used uh, surplus tents, uniforms from World War I that are brought out and made good use. But within that first, um, that first three months, you end up with a quarter million people who have enlisted, if you would, in this sort of militaristic effort to plant trees and to um, improve the conservation of our nation's forests, waterways, farmland, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the pay is a dollar a day. And that's one of the things you often hear about, $30 a month roughly, the equivalent today of about 600. One of the important rules was that much of that money had to be sent back to the mm -hmm. family. The guys who are volunteering are between the ages of 18 and 25. Later, that would be changed to 17 and 28, but they are unmarried men who have um, otherwise not a job to take and families at home, largely that are on the dole. And so, you know, that kind of cash showing up on a monthly basis and having one less month, uh, mouth and probably a hungry mouth, mm -hmm. you know, an 18-year-old mouth to feed, yep. um, takes some burden off of that family. So they sign up for six months enlistments. You could get three more for a total of a two-year uh, stint. And in the end, three million people would take advantage of this opportunity. But you got essentially free housing, free clothing, uh, three squares a day, and medical care, dentistry. Some of them had never seen a dentist before. Um, and your family was going to benefit from it at the same time. So the camps, like I said, initially were made up of tents. But eventually, you've got barracks, mess halls, rec halls, bathhouses, latrines, um, and even a classroom. One of the things I learned while um, sort of looking for this or studying a little bit to give this talk today, you know, 40,000 of the, those who would enlist would end up developing literacy skills. There's a lot going on here beyond, um, I think, just planting trees, even though that's certainly, a, uh, in and of itself, uh, worthwhile. But the camps were set up as in military style, as I said, imagine uh, rows of tents or barracks, and you would hear reverie in the morning. You would hear taps at night, um, and they were involved in calisthenics, uh, physical training, as well as the normal labors of planting and cutting, uh, blazing trails, building barracks, buildings, etc. But the average CCC recruit put on 40 pounds of weight. That's, which that's, that's crazy insane that's yeah. a crazy amount of weight and and i think two things are, it's a testament to two facts 
one, the obvious is they're putting on some muscle here, and mm -hmm. they're they're making they're eating well and they're working hard. The other fact is that they're simply malnourished when they <laughs> show up. So these are people on hard times, um, and I think it's a kind of poverty that I don't want to say is unknown in America today, but the depression poverty that we're talking about. Um, it's pretty severe. Yeah, it was just on such a larger, such a large scale that we can't really fathom that today. Oh, I agree with you. Um, yeah, tough times, tough times. And you only have to look at the photos. Well, one unfortunate fact about the podcast is I have great photos to show you. <laughs> but go online and dig into those if you can. But, you know, they're best known for planting trees. Um, the great shelter belt that they construct, it's a 100-mile wide swath of trees planted from Canada all the way to the Brazos River. Um, in Texas along the Mexican border. And it's because the Dust Bowl has begun. 1930, 1936, we've got this terrible period of drought accompanied by really poor planting technique. Mm -hmm. um, and the place has been deforested. And so these, you know, this windbreak essentially that's being constructed is probably the kind of the most notable achievement. We always talk about the planting of trees, but they're in, engaged in quite a bit of firefighting. Mm -hmm. In 1937, there's a terrible flood along the Mississippi when they save towns in Indiana. Yeah, there's a terrible hurricane in 38 in New England. They're there. Uh, so they're also sent almost as though the National Guard might be sent today uh, to aid in times of struggles. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't without its critics. Unions in particular were worried about this program that was going to pay people a dollar a day. Uh, even for the times, that's not a living wage. And um, you know, the fear was it would drive down union wages, if you would. FDR being the savvy guy that he is, he actually picks um, a Robert Fechner, uh, names him the administrator of the program. He is a union vice president. So he brings union on board and kind of makes it harder to complain. The reality is there really weren't enough good union jobs to go around anyway. Uh, that's harder to complain about. Well, you I know, guess. and that, that dollar a day, that's a surface level look at it, right? Because yes. uh, as you already said, I mean, they got three square meals a day, free housing, some free clothing, uh, you know, and then, you know, healthcare and dental, like that's all the extra stuff that isn't included in that dollar. Absolutely. That has obviously has a dollar value attached to it. Well, and, and in some ways intangible factors, which I would point to that the, the program itself provides what was de deemed then or called then honest work. It was a day's labor. Um, you know, as much as you might enjoy sleeping in on a weekend, the idea that you sleep in every day starts to wear thin and you start to feel a lack of purpose. These jobs provided that for young men who frankly needed it. And so it also would then, you know, run against any kind of conservative claims, like I said, of, of waste or expense, it seems to well, well uh, outpace um, any of those fears. And, but within the very far left fringe, I will tell you, within the sort of American Communist Party in particular, they were worried that this was some sort of militarism. We're taking all these young people out, and we are training them in military-style camps, and it smacked of fascism. One of the things people forget is that FDR gets elected the same year as Hitler. Now, at this point, no one knows the real bugaboo that Hitler will become for humanity. Um, he is seen as, you know, an unlikely leader over there, but his militarism is um, unmistakable. And the fear among Americans who were sort of had their eye on these things is that this was some jingoistic effort by FDR himself. But, you know, I'm listening, I want you to hear this quote. Richard Hofstadter, who is, uh, you know, one of those historians of note, says also that this program appealed to the romance, this agrarian myth that was pervasive here 
in America, that we should live in close communion with beneficent nature, that there is this connection with our, our own nation's bounty that for many living in the East in a city would have no clue and also gives them a larger sort of lens to see our country through and to recognize opportunities beyond their own. Um, said here that the, by definition a wholesomeness and integrity impossible for the depraved populations of the cities and that the CCC captured the popular imagination in that way. The Detroit News in 34 said no activity of the entire alphabetical array of the New Deal projects has met with an approval so universal as has been accorded the aptly named Civilian Conservation Corps. Yeah, I mean, FDR was willing to hand out money. Unlike Hoover, he was okay, at least initially, with some direct relief payments to families in need. But he is remem remind or remembered as having said the greatest priority is to put people to work. He knew the value of a day's labor. And when you've got 25% of your populace out of work, um, that's, not, that's, not a, that's not a success story, not economically or um, in the psyche of a people who felt like the promise of America, the promise of capitalism, seemed to have vaporized like their stock values. And I think one of the enduring mythos in, in American culture is this idea that through the dint of hard work that you can make something of yourself. In 1932, it didn't feel that way. And I think for some Americans, there was no coming to grips with failure in the economic field. Um, the number of fathers who desert their families goes up. There's a sense of worthlessness. What good am I if I can't provide? And for Americans hungry for that sense of purpose, the CCC really provided it. I would also say that you know there is a, uh, a judge in Chicago who's reminded or remembered as having said that the CCC could be thanked for helping reduce his crime rate by 55%. Imagine a group of men, 18 to 25, who have nothing better to do with their time than hang out on street corners. That's a recipe for trouble. Yeah. Um, and so let's put them to work. Let's give them, you know, as a classroom teacher, we know that idle hands, mm -hmm. what, what problem that creates. And so we're going to put them to work in that very way. Also, going back to that original introduction about the bonus army and those veterans from World War I that were looking for opportunity, a full 25% of the CCC would be made up of World War I veterans who were given their own separate camps. Most of those guys were in their 30s. Their labors were not quite as brutal, um, but they were given purpose also, which is, again, maybe the most important thing that I could offer. So the Corps plants an astonishing 3 billion trees, develops 800 state parks, protects 20 million acres from erosion, clears 125,000 miles of trails. Interestingly enough, also the first ski trails. Stowe, Vermont can thank the CCC for cutting in its first American ski uh, resort. That's kind of wild, but it's happening there. And today in programs like, you know, you know we, I would say that it's the basis um, for Kennedy's Job Corps, for VISTA, uh, the Peace Corps, um, and today's AmeriCorps as well, mm -hmm. this idea of putting young people to work in what I would say is useful industrial labors. Yeah, and you know, whenever, whenever I talk to people about the sort of CCC, you mentioned, I mentioned, you just mentioned, you know, eight million or eight billion trees, yeah. or I'm sorry, three, three billion, billion trees, yeah. right? Over three billion trees. Why? Why would we need to plant three billion trees? Well, because of industry pre-1930 with the amount of trees that were cut down for wood production, for tanneries and things like that, which is something we can see virtually right out our back door, you know, 60 miles to the north in the 
in the uh, Allegheny National Forest, I mean, now it looks beautiful. There's trees everywhere. All of those trees were planted through the CCC, essentially. Yeah. And because it was, I mean, landscapes completely devastated. And then that led to forest fires, led to flash floods, led to, I mean, all kinds of stuff because there's no erosion. I mean, no trees. So that's why we needed to plant the trees because we had sort of let industry in that laissez-faire attitude sort of just do what it wanted to do. And it really scarred the landscape. Well, and I think you, you come to recognize in the early 20th century, the fact that our, our uh, mineral and lumber and oil wealth was not inexhaustible. And I think in the 1800s, it appears as such, mm-hmm. um, but that all does come to a close. Uh, you could credit one of his distant cousins, yep. right? With setting aside national forest land, national parks. I'm speaking about Teddy Roosevelt, uh, but you know, FDR, I think, in his work helps to further that. And, yes. And he is very much a conservationist. Uh, maybe not in the same way that you or I would think about it today, but this program is on the cutting edge, mm-hmm. I think, and, and shows his liberalism through as well. Yeah, so we have this program that he starts, right? And it runs through a nine-year run, right? Yeah. Um, and that enrollment, the, the enrollment of it, everything in the program sort of peaks in 1935 was when it was sort of at its, like, biggest. Heyday. Yeah. yeah. And it eventually, ha- it eventually stops, right? Because... Well, Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. Uh, well, I would even say in 1940, the Conscription Act was passed, and it's the first peacetime conscription effort ever by the, the American government. And it shows, I think, because a lot of people assume Pearl Harbor came out of nowhere, and that's not entirely true. Um, the fact that we, a full year before, were already forcing people into joining the military, um, there were definitely clouds on the horizon. Well, and, you know, FDR was working behind the scenes trying to find ways to get aid to, to Britain before, you know, because he, oh, yes. he wasn't allowed to actually declare war, help out. No, no, no. So we have these convoluted programs like Lend-Lease. Mm-hmm. We're leasing them bullets and planes. Um, <laughs> yeah, please give us our bullets back when you're done with those. Um, but the reality is, yeah, the program is going to die officially in 1942, but that's because, I will say as well, our economy, because of our production for our allied friends, had increased um, 38, 39, 40 there are other jobs to be had, better paying jobs, mm-hmm. frankly, than the CCC was offering. And a lot of guys are obviously taking those. Um, one well, of the things that I didn't know was that, you know, after the war begins and conscription is, is um, in full swing, the CCC starts working hard to build barracks, to build new army camps. Instead of foresting, the, they sort of shift their job um, and start creating training programs for guys that were going to go overseas and mm-hmm. fight. Also, um, the camps themselves, after they're closed for use by the, the Civilian Conservation Corps, they will be used as places to hold Japanese, German, Italian-Americans who are also interned. They, some of these become internment camps, yeah. which is pretty wild. And as well, places to put our uh, prisoners of war. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, the, the program goes away because of the war. And because, frankly, the need, at least the employment need, seemed to have disappeared. Well, plus, I mean, okay, so you have some younger guys that aren't going to go into, you know, a factory job. Where else are they going to go? Oh, they're going to be drafted and go into the war, right? You just don't have the manpower to really fully get the enforcement of, you know, what the CCC can do. Well, and, you know, to that end, too, 65% of those who had been in the CCC end up fighting overseas. Yeah. So... 
um, yeah, we've got things for them to do. Right. Yeah. There, there's are more pressing issues yeah. at that point. Um, you know, and then after the war, a lot of the structures, you know, the trails remain, right? The bridges that they built remain. The structures, um, not all of them, but many of them remain, but then get reimagined. So, like, when you go to Allegheny National Forest, their visitor center is an original structure from CCC builders. I didn't know that. That is basically, it was like the log office of that camp. They kept it and turned it into a visitor center. Right. And so that, you know, the signs that you see now whenever you go to uh, national forests and, and some national parks, uh, that sort of style was developed in the CCC. And they just sort of kept that style because it lent itself to a more natural wood, dark wood base, you know, made it seem like it blended. Yeah, yeah, it blended with the landscape. Um, I don't know if you saw this in, in your little bit of research you did there. Uh, to feel like you knew what you were talking yeah. about. <laughs> but do you know of uh, some of the celebrities that no, future celebrities that would be that uh, served in the CCC? I don't. Walter Matthau. Really? Chuck Yeager. Uh, Raymond Burr. Nice. And Stan Musial. Stan Musial. Of all, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, so yeah. it wasn't like, you know, just people that would get lost to history that we just see faces and photographs and don't know yeah. their names. Like there's some actual people there that later on, you know, became very famous. Well, I was going to, the one that I do know is uh, George C. Marshall from, mm -hmm. uh, is it Uniontown, Pennsylvania, who ends up not only becoming a five-star general during World War II, but then is Secretary of State um, during Truman's time in office and will be the author of what's called the Marshall Plan, where we help to bail out it's funny, he's in a program that got, he got bailed out in the CCC as a young unemployed man. He ends up helping rebuild Western Europe through American aid after the war. So yeah, that's, yeah. I guess in th with three million guys, right? There's gonna be there's some gonna, big names that come out yeah. of that. People, you know, and by, like you said, sort of getting bailed out yourself, you're gonna learn from that and you're gonna take that stuff in and then figure out how to use that experience to do something else after that. Well, and I think the employability of these guys is something that FDR talked about, was we're not just sending home the same person, uh, and they're not just better fed with some chest muscle. You know, they, they mm -hmm. understand now their, their position in, in a chain of command, whether it be military or within industry, your corporate uh, world, whatever. Um, certainly it's going to help them as they adjust to military life, like I said, for the 65% who end up enlisting or being drafted. But there are a lot of transferable skills that will become assets, you know, in our own economy. Now, uh, we've we've just sort of talked about all these like great benefits that the original CCC yeah. had. But I feel like it'd be remiss if we didn't mention a couple of the sort of darker parts of it, right? So, uh, for example, segregated camps within that, right? Um, looking, you know, through the looking glass of, of history, it, it's it's tough to judge that based on now, but it was something, right? Well, um, you know, something comes to mind. It's you're right. It's like hard to measure success. Was I, w I would point out to you that when this bill initially is put forward by FDR for passage in Congress, there is an African American congressman from Illinois whose name eludes me right now, who successfully added to the bill that blacks would be included. The fact that the camps were segregated sounds like a failing. The reality is the potential real failure was no people of color, period, would right. be included in such a program. 
Um, there were 15,000 Native Americans brought into camps as well. They were in their own camps, I would say, as well. They were segregated, as yep. were African Americans, mm -hmm. um, and also the World War One vets because of their sort of um, their level of experience. They, they didn't want them mixing with eighteen-year-old guys, basically. Um, <laughs> they they want to. They didn't want them to be corrupted. Corrupt. Well, I, you know, <laughs> their bonus army people had been throwing bricks at the police in D.C. But long story short, I think is that you can see it for the success that it was. Um, Truman, when he would in 1947 actually forcibly integrate armed forces, cited the success of the CCC, who had several camps that were, in fact, integrated. Yeah. Um, and there are, there's, um, and I, I didn't dig into it far enough, there's a story of a Southern congressman who basically wigs out when he finds out that they're going to build a, a black, if you would, a camp for blacks in his, um, for, for, in his um, congressional district. And he cans it. He doesn't want any part of it. He doesn't want this camp of black men working in his district and comes out the, the, the public is furious because he gave up on all this, these dollars that mm. were going to show up. I think when you're starving, when you are without hope, racism fades. And um, some of that shows up in the CCC. Yeah, well, I mean, think about it. I mean, the, the vast majority of the people, not vast majority, but a lot of the men that were young men that were going in this program were coming from inner city urban settings, which is going to be predominantly African-American which they're then going to rural settings. Uh, that's a little bit of shock, shock for the town people in the beginning until they realize that, that that green color of the money spends the same regardless of who has it. Yeah, that's, that, uh, that convinces everyone, I think, um, especially in desperate times. Those, those, those uh, impulses, bigoted impulses, I think, do become secondary. Yeah, the program is without a doubt a huge success. The only, you know, if it's a failing, it's the fact that it's not permanent. Its value as a long-term producer of well-equipped young men, uh, maybe that it's, it's underestimated. And one of the reasons that I think we're looking for perhaps a way to have this program or one like it brought back out. Well, Be yeah, go ahead. That, 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 I mean, that's a perfect transition into the next phase of this. I mean, listen. The CCC was born out of tough times, right? Um, our, our country has successfully multiple times come out of tough times through that hard work, right? That idea of an honest day's wage for an honest day's labor type deal. And you know, right now we're in the midst of some of the worst unemployment numbers that we've seen basically since the Great Depression, right? So. The government has done what they can, I feel like, at this point to try to help struggling families. But, you know, as someone who's a struggling family, you know, just getting some little bit of money that really doesn't go that far for free doesn't necessarily feel fulfilling for a lot of these people, right? So what can we do to sort of try to put them back to work? Well, why don't we restart this idea of the CCC? As you said, it, the failing is, one of the biggest failings is that it wasn't permanent. Well, now we have a chance, we have an opportunity to restart it, even if it's just, unfortunately, for a short period of time. Or even in, small, in a smaller scale. You know, I don't know that we're going to need to have, at, you know, at peak 35, 36, you've got 600,000 people in the program, uh, 2,650 camps. We may never see that again. Uh, but I don't know that that means that we don't need some version thereof. Congress is always talking about shovel-ready programs. And literally, this is that thing. All you yeah. need is a shovel. Yeah. Um, and yeah, low startup costs, and I would assume a high degree of buy-in. 
even from, and this is the other thought I had, was that even from typically conservative Western, more rural locations, they, I think, would buy into a government program uh, that they see as valuable to, to their own towns. Right, and it's going to be valuable to their towns because one of the shovel-ready things we can do is fire prevention yes. techniques, right? If, but what, what, in order to enact the, the plans to try to prevent some of these wildfires that have been breaking out ever more yeah. common is, is you, ne- you need people and you need the equipment. Well, in order to get the people and the equipment, you need a little bit of money, right? You need funding. Mm-hmm. Um, so last September, there was actually an act introduced into the Senate, Senate Bill number 4538, uh, the Renew Conservation Corps Act. And that, that Renew, of course, you know, as everything these days is an acronym for the Restore Employment in Natural and Environmental Work. It's a pretty one. I yeah, like so Renew sounds a little bit better. Um, it actually came from... Uh, uh, Senator from Illinois, Democratic Senator from Illinois, uh, Senator Durbin, um, and he, like I say, introduced in September. Uh, What's the problem with introducing a bill in September of an election year, Mr. (laughs) Renai? Well, you know, there wasn't a lot of buy-in, and I think everyone's holding their breath to see what what was going to happen in the November election. Yeah. So it didn't go anywhere. Um, But just to give you some of the details from this, basically it would enlist uh, the Department of Interior and Department of Agriculture to oversee it, mainly with some other departments sort of intermixed in there. Uh, Over a five-year period, the government would fund $55.8 billion. That money would actually go to existing nonprofits and grassroots organizations in rural and urban settings in a sort of grant style. They're already in place. They already know what projects they want done. They just need the money to do them, right? So they need the money, so they get the money. Now, with that money, they can then employ up to a million Americans and to try to make it a little bit better inclusive-wise, men and women, Mm. right, Um, 16 and older. They can, again, you know, sign up for a stint, which would be 12 weeks or 24 weeks, or they could sign up for a full year, and they would make $15 an hour uh, while they're there. They get two weeks of training. And if they sign up for that one year, uh, you know, commitment, they also get a $5,000 stipend to continue their education after they've gone through the program, right? Um, So the idea behind this isn't just giving people work to do so that they can then have jobs, but then also have training so that they can sort of create those sort of green candidates for green careers in forestry and agriculture and ecology, that kind of stuff. And then while they're doing that work, they can also work on that sort of backlog of conservation projects on public lands or, you know, anywhere that these, you know, nonprofits and organizations get their grant money for their projects. I mean, sounds good to me, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking you need to testify in front of Congress. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I don't, one, I don't think I'll get that opportunity. <laughs> no. uh, I, I would love to. Sure. Um, but uh, I don't think I'm really going to need to, right? Because while that bill just sort of languished and sort of disappeared, Biden and his slew of executive orders that he signed, uh, one that he signed on uh, February 1st that has gotten a lot of publicity is the tackling the climate crisis at home executive order, right? And the big thing that everyone wants to sort of mention about that is that he puts in there that he wants to protect 30% of our undeveloped land and waters by 2030, right? That's what everyone wants to take from that. Um, 
that's a that's a great sort of headline that the media can capture. Sure. But as with everything that you see in politics, it, it, there's layers to it, right? And one of those layers, you know, when you really start diving into it and, and sort of reading it a little bit, in Section 215, it's actually the the creation of the civilian climate crisis. Now, listen, all of the people out there that are listening right now and they hear the word climate, yeah. you know, because in this executive order has a lot about the, Par the Paris Climate Agreement and things like that. Like, I know that's going to turn a lot of people off, but the idea is that the he has now required the Secretary of the Interior and the Secretary of Agriculture to develop and submit a strategy based off of Senate Bill 4538 to implement essentially that same Renew Conservation Corps Act, mm -hmm. right? Just do that, redo. Now, the CCC no longer is the Civilian uh, Conservation Corps. It's now the Civilian Climate Corps. But realize that, you know, by doing conservation work, that's the fringe benefit of that that you don't see is that it should also help meet some climate goals that that he's touting right so helping to, to solidify wildlife corridors um fund more conservation easements uh help maintain and develop more urban parks uh some landscape level uh connectivity right so doing things like planting trees by increasing um plantings like would be similar to crp programs that farmers use that's going to then sequester carbon and, and greenhouse gases, right? But then on top of that, okay, yeah, that might be, you know, the climate side of it, but we're also making things better for us to look at nature-wise, right? right? right we can use stuff. We can then also, you know, have benefits to wildlife, right? Because it's, we're seeing this rapid, uh, this rapid collapse, basically, of, of diversity in species, both plant and animal. So we can... Mm -hmm by doing conservation work, which is a good thing, we can solve that, right? Well, the thing you bring up, you know, it's, it's this large omnibus bill that has, you know, phrases in it or words in it that make, you know, have the hackles up um, of some who are worried about jobs in, let's say, um, fossil fuel industries or mining. Um, and I don't know that these things need to be opposed to one another. And I think that's the point you're trying to make here. There's a yeah. lot out there that can be supported within the bill, perhaps. Certainly this idea of a, um, a Conservation Corps-esque program, if it's paired with other things, that's always the, the downfall. You know, I think politicians want a big win. They want to be able to tout a big success. Um, and sometimes a small program, while it might go through on its own, is instead attached to these other riders and, and um, you know, pork barrel legislation, frankly, um, for other congressional districts and constituencies. But you certainly got my support. Not that anyone's asking, but uh, it's there. <laughs> well, you know, I just, I look at it, at, at this concept, right? It, by, by doing this, if we would enact this and we get this rolling, right, it can be a success because we already have something, to, a success to draw from. Right. As An sort of that. To follow, sure. Yeah. That, that structure, that framework. Uh, and then not only can we put people to work where they're going to make a very low, I'll, I'll say very low livable wage. Right. But it is right. It's putting someone to work. Right. And then we're helping conservation issues. Right. We are uh, helping to solve the backlog of maintenance work on our trails. 
uh, things of that nature. Like, how, I don't understand how it can be a bad thing. And, you know, when I talk about conservation, I'm not talking about the complete protection. You are not allowed to cut down this tree. I look at through sustainable use, Absolutely. right? We have a natural, we have a national forest uh, here in Pennsylvania, and there are natural resources there that we can use without devastating the area. We can use those resources sustainably so that the forestry industry can still use those, right? They can use those products and, and make their money. We can still have a, a capital, uh, you know, that sort of capitalism aspect, but do it in a way that's not going to just completely devastate and now we have no trees left. Yeah. I think sustainable is really that's the a great, turn yeah, there. I think that's the word. That's the word that everybody can buy into. Um, and maybe... Maybe that acronym. Maybe you add sustainability into that acronym. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I agree with you. I, I would like to see that um, push through. I mean, right now, it might sound like a, a democratic initiative, um, in the sense that it has maybe liberal underpinnings. Uh, I think that's what you're speaking to. But I think that the idea of our our outdoors appreciation of the beauty. Um, and sustaining that beauty is, is something that certainly crosses the aisle. Yeah, I mean, you look at the hunting industry, Yeah, very much Republican-based, sure. right, in the traditional sense, mm -hmm. um, although that's slowly changing. Um, so if you're a hunter, why wouldn't you want conservation projects taking place around the areas that you hunt? It's going to benefit the wildlife for the activity that you actually do, right? So just because a, a Democrat proposes it doesn't mean it's automatically bad because I'm a Republican, right? It, it means, okay, they're, they're actually gonna help something that I agree with too, right? It, it's not all this, this black and white. There's those gray areas in between. And uh, to be able to you know, not only help wildlife, which I think is great, but then also sequester carbon that Obviously, the Biden administration thinks is a good thing. How's that bad? You're describing a win-win. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that's where we are. Right. I mean, if if I'm a, I'm just thinking from this forestry aspect. If I'm a forester, I want to cut down trees. But if I'm doing, if I'm trying to think of the long term, you know, the longevity of my company, sure. cutting down all the trees within a hundred miles of me is not going to be good for longevity, no. right? So if I cut down some, and then leave others so that whenever they get to the size I need, I can cut them down mm -hmm. and I can just perpetually cut in the same areas over years and I do it sustainably, sure. that's longevity of my company. I might not make as much money right now, but I'm gonna make more money over the long, over the long run, haul. right? So, I mean, there's this, it just makes complete sense to me given the times we're in right now where people are, uh, a, high, a high percentage of people are unemployed, right? And they're looking for work and they want to work to make their money, hey, here's a chance to do that. Well, and I think you point out too that, you know, in this time period that we're living in where checks are showing up at homes unattached to labor, it, it does put food on the table, but it doesn't give purpose. And I think mm -hmm. for, you know, sort of the budget hawks, those who would look at our deficit or be concerned about the idea of government just handing out money, it doesn't have to be attached that way. It, it can be put, I think, to better use or to incentivize action. Um, that doesn't mean that we're going to ask every grandmother who's COVID, co you know, 
uh, has morbid, you know, comorbidities to get out there into public during a COVID pandemic. But the other thing that um, occurs to me as we're having this conversation is that if you're looking for a safe place to work, the woods are pretty safe. You know, you can definitely get your six feet. No problem. Hunting and fishing licenses nationwide saw a huge spike this past year during the pandemic. Why? Because it's very easily easy to socially distance outside. Yeah. Especially if you're by yourself or just with the people in your household. And I know in my own experience, the number of visits to parks has gone up, you know, in my own family's instance. But also I've noticed an uptick in usage uh, throughout our, our park systems, at least in the in this section of the country or state even that we are in and, and i would assume too then that that helps to drive up at least among the voting populace interest in preserving and polishing those resources that are out there yeah i would agree with that and then i mean you've been teaching longer than me you've seen these teenagers right we teach yeah. in a high school setting i would argue that over the last five or six years i have seen a huge uh increase in in interest among these teenagers in wanting to do something that is bigger than themselves. Sure. They want to make a difference, right? This and they, and give, they frequently don't know how. And they don't know how. Right, right. We give them this opportunity to go out, make a difference, learn these skills, right, to create new candidates for green careers. And maybe that, you know, propels them into a field that then makes a bigger difference. And guess what? They can have a job and make money doing it too. Right. Isn't that the hope <laughs> for all of them? It's funny when you started saying that about our career here and, and our constituents, which are, you know, kids upon graduation, many of them are a bit directionless. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I would say is, and it's a longer conversation, but, you know, having some sort of program, not a mandate, uh, that would be the conversation, but a mandated either, you know, service era or service period, whether it be a one year or two year period for your 18 year old. Um, a lot of people, a lot of kids, frankly, aren't ready for college or mm -hmm. college isn't ready for them. Um, and the, you know, having a time to see the larger world that lies outside in a, um, in, in, a in a way that would also give them skills and uh, and some pay, always always wanted, always needed, um, and and I feel like for our kids, their maturity. I, I mean, I wasn't there in the fifties and sixties. You know, we had keep people leaving high school and getting married right away, mm -hmm. and there were in our own um, Allegheny Valley here good jobs available at the mill that didn't require education beyond. Uh, and those, the, that reality has shifted. And their, their um, adulthood, the onset of adulthood, seems to be pushed further and further away. Uh, and they're not paying for their own garbage removal, right? They're not yep. yet you're not You're not an adult until you pay for, some, until you pay for someone else to take away your trash. Yeah, that's, that's a measure of things. Um, and I would say when you talk about this kind of program, I think of students in my own classroom who would benefit from a little more seasoning and a safe opportunity to get out there and to see a bit of the world, uh, our country that is, and um, explore opportunities that might otherwise be uh, unavailable to them. Yeah, I'll just speak to my own experience. You know, I left high school, went straight to college. Uh, looking back on my time uh, as an 18 and 19 year old, for sure, maybe even as uh, up into my oh, 20th year old, I, I mean, I did not waver in my major choice or anything like that, but uh, I won't say I was aimlessly wandering, but I definitely didn't get as much out of those early, earlier classes as I would, would have at 22 well, or 23. I mean, every, every student who's been in college and had the unfortunate um, 
<laughs> if you've ever been in a situation where a non-traditional student shows up in your class, maybe a 26-year-old person who's working during the day and showing up at night to take a course you're in, you've realized that they're about to ruin the curve mm -hmm. um, because they're frankly approaching it from a different mindset. Yep. And um, it's a gear that, you know, and I agree, at 18 I didn't have it. And um, so maybe there's something in there too to consider as you think about programs for young men and women um, to get outside and to do something for our environment. Well said, well said. Yeah. Well, John, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. I appreciate it. Fun. I love learning. I feel like that's what we did today. <laughs>once again that is going to do it for our episode this week i am not going to mince words i think the idea of starting the ccc again renewing it whether it's the civilian conservation corps or whether it's the civilian climate corps whatever you want to call it this program is desperately needed in our country there is a huge amount of backlogs of projects that need to be done uh, in our national parks, uh, in our national forests, in our state parks. There are huge amounts of projects that nonprofits want to get done that they just need the funding for and they just need the people for. And by putting this idea into practice will solve a lot of those issues, right? We have these, quote, shovel-ready projects. Let's get them done. There are so many benefits to this outside of just economics, you know, with the whole mental health, physical health. We've seen the draw of the outdoors in this past year, how it's really helped people, how people have gotten back to it. While I'm sure some of the hunting and hiking and fishing numbers are going to decline, right, from, from the pandemic highs. There's going to be some people that get back to uh, you know, regular life, normal life for them that is not going to uh, include as much outdoor activity. That is, you know, guarantee, I guarantee that's going to happen. But for those people that stick with it, right, the people that found out just how good for the soul, for their mental health, how good it is for them physically, and that they really enjoyed these activities, we need to make sure that we are working to make nature as good as it possibly can be for these people and then also you know for the wildlife as well so i really don't see any downsides to a government sponsored program like this some people might want to say the economics right the you know that billions of dollars taxes i get that we're going to pay taxes regardless, right? That's, that's how the government functions is on taxes. In my personal opinion, I'd rather my taxes go towards conservation than some of the other things that those tax dollars are spent on, right? Um, so, like I said, my opinion. I'm a supporter of conservation and nature and the outdoors and wildlife. I want to see more money go towards those kinds of things because that's what I'm interested in. Next week, I have a 
another great episode with another great guest that actually will tie into what we just talked about a little bit uh, on the political side of, of conservation issues. Uh, so get ready for that. There's your little teaser. And until you join me next week, remember to stay wild.